Welcome to Podagogies. I'm Curtis Maloli. And I'm Chelsea Jones. Today we're speaking to Maureen Conley, a 3M National Teaching Fellow and a Professor of Physical Education and Kinesiology at Brock University. Maureen's also the director of the Brock Niagara Center of Excellence in Inclusive and Adaptive Physical Activity. She has been a director of the Teaching Center at Brock, and she's a leader nationally in teaching and learning development. We're really thrilled to have you here, Maureen. Welcome. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, for those that uh, might not know it or might not be aware of it, the 3M National Teaching Fellowship is really Canada's most prestigious recognition of excellence in, in teaching at the higher education level and educational leadership. Um, and I know you've had such a big influence on so many educators that I know. Uh, and I've, I've learned a lot from you personally, you know, as part of the ISW network and those kinds of things. And right now, we're recording this about a few days from the start of a new semester. Our campuses are fully back in person for the first time in a long time. There's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and what that's going to do. There's a lot of anxiety about that. I'm wondering for you, as you sit here today getting ready to teach next week, what is front of mind for you? Oh, gosh, front of mind. Um, I have a new course, which I'm very excited about. And uh and half of the course is going to be in the gymnasium, which I'm equally excited about. I love being in the gymnasium with the learners. My dean is really skeptical. He thinks, he says, oh, being in the gym is a waste of time. And I go, no, that's where all the learning happens, man. And so I'm very excited about being in a gymnasium with a new course. There's a bunch of things I'm excited about, and all of them have to do with the moving body. But I'm a physical educator. so. Of course, I'm excited about that. Uh, I guess the number two thing I'm thinking about is um, the profiles of the learners who are coming in and how many of them, like since 2020, how absolutely diverse those learner profiles are, depending on what their high school was like through COVID, what their first two years of university were like with COVID, what their middle two years might have been like with COVID. So I'm, I'm thinking that the profile, like the diversity profile overall is so different now because of the way that education adapted, right, from 2020 through 2022. So I guess I got a bit of trepidation about that. Yeah, that's mostly it, though. Like, I always love the start of the new term. I get totally pumped when the new term starts. It's great. I mean, I've been doing this for a lot of years now, and I'm just as excited as I ever was. So, yeah. Maureen, I want to ask you some questions about what it's like to be in that in-between space between feeling excited, but also feeling trepidation and mm -hmm. some awareness of the difficulties to come. So I do, I want to get back to that because I think yeah. it's really important. First, I wonder if I can ask you to talk a little bit about your pedagogy. And I'm thinking about what you just said about how learning happens in the gym, because that's not everyone's pedagogical stance. So no, no. can you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say oh, learning okay, yeah, happens in sure, the gym? Sure. And, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was attracted to physical education as a, a young person. Um, not because I was any kind of an accomplished athlete or mover, but because I enjoyed how I felt when I moved. 
And I, um, I had a lot of strange experiences as a kid, having car accidents and other kinds of injuries, having to relearn a lot of movement and be connected with my moving body, maybe in ways that other kids haven't experienced. I don't know, but it was really formative for me. So when I knew the teaching was what was kind of calling me, it was physical education. I knew I was going there. Um, I started um, my life as a teacher with preschoolers, little kids. And man, there's nothing like working with preschoolers in a play situation in a gymnasium. They are so funny and eager and like ridiculous and and clumsy. everywhere and they're everywhere <laughs> and everything is a learning experience right it's a whole mm -hmm. new world they've only been on the planet like three years three or four years they don't know much about like the complexities of life or danger or anything like that but they know so much about like being curious and like following you know their their curiosity and letting their little bodies kind of lead the way when I am in a classroom, there's usually a lot of movement, like the room is organized so that the people can get up and move around. I like placing the body at the center of the pedagogy. Um, and I do that generally. But in the gym, I really like how embodied insight happens kind of before it catches up with the cognitive expression of that insight. It, I can kind of see it happening in their bodies and then kind of their brains catch up. They go, oh, yeah, I remember, blah, blah. And then it sort of starts coming together. Um, and my labs are two hours long. So sometimes you can actually see it happening from the beginning of the lab to the end of the lab. Like they'll start in that first hour, kind of <laughs> clueless. <laughs> this is my university students now. But then by the time we're at the end of that hour, you can see them pulling things together. Like I can see it, you know, in front of me. So, yeah. I had that experience with you. I remember um, yeah. I had a chance to do the, what's called a facilitator development workshop. Yeah, yeah, you did an FTW, yes. Yeah, five-day, 40-hour intensive teaching workshop. Um, and I remember you leading us through a an activity with puzzles and all these kinds mm -hmm. of things and i was puzzled i'm like i don't know where morning is going with this the hell are we doing here but by <laughs> the end of it by the end of it i was like oh like like there was a huge eureka i mean I, I i remember this one activity that you did with us very vividly i know i've heard you say in the past that and whether this is in a gym or in a lecture or mm -hmm. wherever it might be you like to create like a, a series of moments for students is a way yeah. that you phrase it before and i know that you love dissonance this is something yes, I do. That, uh, yeah so, you know, this embodied experience, creating moments, creating dissonance. Yeah. What is this for you? What does that mean? Well, I like dissonance because, and I like getting into it fairly quickly because um, a lot of learning in post-secondary, especially, is you're encountering new things. And encountering new things is often scary because you have to abandon <laughs> other things. So, I mean, learning in post-secondary is more about teaching teaching students how to learn than saying here's content and it's never going to change right so getting used to engaging with cycles of change in an ongoing way i think requires a comfort with dissonance with going well gotta abandon that or all right that's not going to work anymore or you know that used to be what we thought but that's not where it's going now i mean we used to think the brain the cortex was sort of solid at the end of adolescence and now we know adolescence is like longer than we thought, you know, and, and we know the cortex is plastic. It learns forever. Like ugh, it's always learning, you know? So, so we can't pretend we don't know that, right? We can't unring that bell. And I think students need 
to develop that comfort with change, right? Changing knowledge, changing methods of learning, changing methods of teaching. And I don't think they're going to do that if they settle into a set of habits that are never going to change. So so I like dissonance because it, it moves people out of habit behavior and habit thinking fairly quickly. So that's a big part of my pedagogy. I think I've said before, the first four to six weeks of classes, my students don't like me much, but, but the last half of the term, they start to go, oh, I see what we're doing here. So the first part of term, they're fairly uncomfortable. I try to make it supportive while they're uncomfortable, but they are uncomfortable. And in the gymnasium, one of the first things we learn at the 200 level is taking weight on the hands. Most of them either have never done that or they haven't done it since they were like five. So they're terrified, right? The first two weeks, they're taking weight on their hands, the first class. So already they're disrupted because they're used to receiving all their kinesthetic information and proprioceptive information from weight bearing on the feet. So now they're on their hands and everything is different. They can't rely on anything. Their information is coming in in different ways. So it's immediate dissonance. It's very effective. I wish I could put some of my colleagues on their hands. <laughs> um, but uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. But What are they doing on their hands? What do you get them to do? Well, eventually they're moving towards handstands and headstands balances, right? And they're inverted, right? So everything is different. Their perspective is different. The things they got to look at are different. The way they take in information is different. Their sense of alignment is different. They have to think about their strengths, which they take for granted, except now they got to go, whoa, I really got to focus. <laughs> like they, they can't sort of move into automatic mode, right? Everything now comes into this sharp, sharp focus, they're afraid of landing on their head, obviously. Um, you know, so that happens in the very first class. And they immediately know they're kind of not in Kansas anymore. They're, this is going to be different. But we have such honest conversations about fear that they know they're not going to be made to do anything that is genuinely frightening or dangerous. But they are going to have to do things that make them uncomfortable, right? I think that moment for learners when they realize, okay, this is going to be uncomfortable, and then they start building strategies to get to it, that's a great moment. I want to stay with this theme of discomfort for just a second and the value of discomfort for learners. Teachers, faculty are also learners. I just wonder, you know, how do we reconcile uh, this sort of task of making sure students feel welcome and safe? Um, but also making sure that there is a level of discomfort that makes way for learning. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting tension. The The environment that I try to build normalizes asking for help. Yeah, I can't do this. I need help. Uh, can someone help me over here? Like you hear that a lot in my gymnasium. That's in, in itself is a dissonance because this generation of learners are under the impression that they got to be perfect right out of the gate. Well, I don't know which is very strange, right? So, so they tend not to ask for help until they're in deep, deep trouble. But they ask for help very quickly in these physical environments. They do need help, so they have to ask for help. And they have to learn how to be helpful because you can't assume what the other person needs for help. You've got to say, what do you need me to do? Okay, I need you to do blah, blah, blah. And you'd think these skills would be like easy, right? Well, they're simple. They're simple, but they're not easy. This generation of students aren't good at asking for help. They don't know what kind of help they need, really. They got to kind of figure out, what do I need? And I think those are 
really helpful skills for them to practice, right? Um, and that carries over to the classroom. It's interesting, and I see this in my students too, and I teach a lot of first-year classes. Um, you know, students are used to, you know, getting A's and getting into university and, you know, they expect that there are correct answers, that if they look in the right places, they'll find those correct answers. Yeah. If they give those correct answers, then they'll get an A. It's very uh, literal, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. very literal at that stage. And so I really love the way that you use dissonance early on as a way to try to, you know, destabilize that mentality in a, in a yeah. productive way. Uh, you've told me a story in the past about, um, you know, teaching lifeguards. The, oh, yeah. The expectation, you know, that uh, the answers are in the book and that if yes. we study the book, we'll be prepared. But your whole philosophy of dissonance is to undermine that. Somewhat, so yes. I, can, I think it's an important metaphor for how we think about our teaching. You got to be able to analyze a situation and problem solve, like in the moment with this person in front of you. You can't sort of just, you know, apply a formula or a template and assume it's a one size fits all for a group of diverse learners and especially learners who need an adapted environment, right? So, of course, you need to know how the spinal cord works and how your nervous system works and and of course you need to know anatomy and yeah and your bones now are the same bones that they were 50 years ago yes lots of things don't change they don't so we're not rejecting content outright right but we are saying look yeah this strategy this is not going to help you here like you need you need to be um flexible and adaptable you need to be and nimble like it's because in some moments it's you need to do these things relatively quickly you have to be responsive so yeah i think dissonance helps with that and i think um helping them realize that learning isn't indexical or purely literal i found it here though therefore it must be correct well that's great but the question didn't ask you to find something it asked you to explain something so even helping them understand the difference between finding things and explaining things you know, they're different tasks. They they require different engagements and planning and all the rest of it, right? I need to intervene and ask, what's the lifeguard story? Oh, the lifeguard <laughs> I story. Don't know. Yeah, so I was teaching a group of lifeguards. We practice getting out of situations, right, where you're grabbed. So I grabbed a young fellow one night in a practice session in an untraditional hold, you know, one that isn't in the book, so to speak, right? But but it's it's legitimate, like someone could grab him this way and he couldn't get out. So we sank and then he tapped me and um, I let him go and we came up to the surface and he said, that hold isn't in the book. And I said, the drowning person hasn't read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so the drowning person just doesn't want to drown. Um, and uh, anyway, he said, um, I suppose you could get out of it. I said, I probably could. So then we went in and he put the same hold on me and I kind of elbowed him in the stomach and popped my head back in his nose and and he let go very quickly. And I said that that's not in the book either, but you need <laughs> to be able to save your own life, right? Or you can't save this person's life. So on the one hand, I'm glad he read the book, but he could not problem solve in the moment. I don't want him on a deck lifeguarding. <laughs> He, he needs to be able to problem solve in the moment, right? Well, and that's the dissonance, right? Getting comfortable. That's the dissonance. You right can't, there, you can't yeah. panic when you're faced with it. No, you can't. You can't panic yeah. when you're faced with it. And sometimes you have to do unpleasant things. Yeah, so, you know? okay. Hold on. Let, so let's think about this then. You know, I'm I'm speaking to so many educators right now that are in a moment of dissonance. We are now mm -hmm. going into a classroom after an entire summer 
you know, the cover of Toronto Life right now is about uh, artificial intelligence and its yes, impact. Yes, yes. You know, everybody is talking about this. And I've heard people that are very excited about it. I've heard people that are terrified by it. Some people think that, you know, post-secondary is doomed. I mean, there's all kinds of different reactions. When you think about dissonance and you think about some of the lessons here about like, you know, what is learning? Like, so how do we know we've learned something is a question yes. I think that's important here. How are you thinking about AI in this context? The panic might be related to, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to change my assignments. <laughs> or, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to rethink my assessment because I can't rely on turn it in in the way that I used to. I can't rely on my knowledge of the literature. I can't I can't use my own frame of reference as a gauge for the way this generation of learner operates and strategizes. Like, you can't. One of the hardest things, I think, for academics to do is just be connected to what's happening in the culture in front of them, uh, because that's that's where a lot of the clues are, you know? I mean, I'm under no illusions that students think I'm cool and relevant because I'm old enough to be their grandmother, but I've had to commit to understanding what's going on in the culture, right? I'm not interested in being their buddy, but... I don't want to be naive. I mean, I, I don't want to underestimate them and I don't want to deny them of an opportunity for learning things, right? So I think a lot of the, the tension and, and dissonance for academics is rethinking assessment. Not so much rethinking their content because I think most academics are on top of the content. They stay with it as it evolves, but they haven't done that with assessment. Many academics assess students the way they were assessed as students. And I think inside particular disciplines, there are these assessment habits that just persist whether they're valid or effective or not, you know, because numbers in classes and tradition in the discipline and so on, right? So I think rethinking assessment is terrifying for, for most. I had a colleague who shall remain nameless who came into a department meeting one day and said, oh my God, I had a nightmare last night and Maureen was in it. And, um, <laughs> and I said, what was your nightmare? He said, I dreamed the chair assigned us to teach together and you made me change all my assessment. <laughs> he actually said it. He actually said it, right? Out loud. That was a nightmare. So I think it is a nightmare for a lot of people. Rethinking assessment is a nightmare. You can use the AI. Like AI is not our enemy. Right? Like we, we need to figure out ways to optimize it and use it in our favor, you know, uh, so that students can see the difference between something that's generated by, um, you know, a, uh, a generator, not themselves, and how that deprives them of their opportunity for learning. It allows them to submit things, but it deprives them of their opportunity to be a prepared practitioner. In my field, that's deadly. That is deadly, you know? So I got to hammer that home really quickly. And if they want to generate stuff that answers a prompt that isn't going to put a human at risk, do it. I'll build it into the assignment. But if you can't problem solve when someone's at risk, you're no help to the profession, right? So at least in my field, I can use it creatively. And I'm fairly creative with assessment, but I think the assessment piece is what's got a lot of people terrified. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I... I... On the one hand, too, when we think about our assessments, if we're asking students to do things that the AI can do, um, then in many ways, we're, if we're doing a disservice to our students, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, when we think about the kinds of relational ways that we engage with knowledge, when we think about mm -hmm. 
uh, creation and, and some of the more advanced ways that we apply knowledge evaluation. I know you had told a story once about uh, a professor that that you knew who actually tried to teach like the difference between curation and, and creation yes. students. Yeah, he told them, don't put any of yourself in this assignment, just straight up curation. Nothing so what else. Would, what would that look like? What was it like? What, how did it work? Well, they it was in um, communication. Uh, we have a communication popular culture and film department at Brock, and he was a prof in the communication component there. And they were looking at um, a popular culture topic. And so there was a lot of information circulating. So, I mean, his actual intent was to demonstrate to them that you need to be in your own papers. Do you care about that? So he kind of made it a thing that they couldn't do. So they had no choice but to care about it. So he, no opinion, just curation. So he gave them a topic and all they could do was curate, not smooth. He wanted to see the differences between the curated material. And he taught them, you know, please cite the curated material. So they had a series of like, Here's a block, here's a citation, here's a block, here's a citation, here's a block, here's a citation. So so it was all curated, which is a valuable skill. It's helpful for students. To, it's a good R&D skill, right? But then when they wanted to kind of make comments, he said, no, you can't do that. We're not interested in your comments. You just need to curate. <laughs> so, so he kind of made their own opinion and comments more valuable to them than they realized they were at the time. And that's when they it started morphing into an interesting assignment, right? And then he taught them how to paraphrase. You know, um, here's a direct quote, assemble something around it instead of using it as the driver, right? So he, it was pretty ingenious assignment, right? I'm planning to steal it. Um, <laughs> they crave their own input by not being allowed to have any input. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish academics would think about validity in assessment the same way they think about validity in their research. I wish they would make that move. It would really change the assessment landscape in, in our institutions. I love what, that. That's, that's beautiful. What do you think that would look like, Maureen? Um, I'm, I'm trying to envision it. It's amazing, right? It's hard to, it's hard to envision it, isn't it? Because, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I think of, like, a lot of these analytical strategies that we're using in our research analysis could flip over into valid assessment relatively, uh, well, not easily, but I mean, as a, as a cognitive exercise, that's not a big leap, right? And then the creativity comes from, okay, how do we make it accessible? How, how do we make it like bite-sized so our students can do it and we can manage it, right? Assess it depending on numbers in the class. But I mean, I think if if you've got people doing, say, um, probability work or regression lines or or multi-factor analysis, I mean, <laughs> that's what assessment is in many ways. It's multi-factor analysis. You know, it's how does this and this and this and this connect so that you can demonstrate this at the end of the learning process and say, yeah, I'm confident that it's significant at the O5 level, right? 95% of the time, this outcome from the student will demonstrate understanding. We don't do that with assessment, a lot of us. That same tenacity for student learning isn't, isn't there, but it's not like it couldn't be, right? Like, I, I don't think we talk enough about validity in assessment. Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, you're in some ways, the strategies don't matter, right? The point is that our research methods evolve. Yes. And if we consider assessment and pedagogy to be 
onto epistemological, then like that can evolve as that well. That can evolve right? too. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's not yeah. like they're in different universes. <laughs> yeah. Well, exactly. And I would even suggest that people, you know, um, teachers make decisions on how they teach based on how, based on how they think and what they understand. Of and course. That too yeah. is closely connected to research. Yeah, yeah. People typically teach the way they learn. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So like figuring out ways like if that's the only way you teach, then you're only kind of reaching learners who are a lot like you. Yeah. Um, right. Which is sort of unfortunate, you know, because most of the learners in your class aren't like you. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, it's not their goal to be an academic. <laughs> they want to do other things, you know. Um, so it's, you know. Yeah. So just as we as we sort of wind down this conversation, Maureen, I, I want I do want to return to that sort of space between excitement and trepidation <laughs> that you described earlier because I think you're not the only one who's no. going into this this semester I imagine lots of people are are sort of in that space as well and I'm thinking particularly for uh new teachers new faculty or people who just feel like it's new because they've been kind of online for a while the the pedagogy has been different for a while do you have any advice or just any thoughts to share for folks who might be in the very space you're describing with you yeah. um I mean I'm I guess I could share the advice I'm given to myself you know which is um don't make assumptions or avoid assumptions without doing your own active investigating and questioning right avoid assumptions avoid the assumption that students are apathetic avoid the assumption that they don't want to be here avoid the assumption that because maybe they're a bit fragile in some areas that that they're overall entitled avoid the assumption avoid assumptions ask um in another department of my life i i've had to do a fair bit of work on um aspects of my personality <laughs> um and and one of the uh one of the things I remember giving up or realizing that I could no longer do, which is going to sound silly when I say it, I, I wasn't telepathic and I wasn't clairvoyant. So I didn't know what people <laughs> were thinking and I couldn't predict the future. Oh, yeah. what a revelation. And so that's the way I approach. That's the way I'm going to approach my learners. I'm not going to assume that I know what they're thinking. I'm going to ask them. And I'm going to ask them in lots of different ways. And I'm not going to leave it to their assumption what I'm thinking. I'm going to let them know what I'm thinking, you know, and I'm going to be myself. I'm not a 35-year-old, young, fresh faculty member. I'm a 67-year-old <laughs> full professor, right, with a lot of years under my belt and a fair bit of cynicism about some things in post-secondary education. And and I'm going to share that part of myself just as much as I'm going to share how excited I am and how much fun I like to have. Um, you know, I think that would that's what I would say. Like, I think it's important to ask, ask learners what's going on. I use assessment to see how they're doing, but I, I ask them a lot of questions. And I have to be patient early days because they're used to being quiet and unanswering questions. And and then the professor moves on, right? So I need to be persistent about the way that I do that because I don't think I can afford to rely on assumptions. The learner, the learner population is way too diverse now to to bring any of those kind of pre-COVID assumptions forward. I mean, it wasn't good to have assumptions then either, but it's the consequences are are more grave now. I think. 
So that's what I'm going to commit to. It is yeah. wonderful advice, not just kind of generally or post-COVID, but even to what we we're talking about with artificial intelligence. I mean, I think we have to talk to our students about it, right? I mean, if there, there's, I've read all kinds of stuff about students that are very earnestly engaging with it to learn. And so we need to be pretty transparent and open with them and mm -hmm. not make assumptions about what that learning looks like. Yeah, absolutely. So, I would yeah. agree. Well, I can't thank you enough. I, I mean, I wish we could keep going. There. <laughs> it's <laughs> fun to talk about teaching and learning. Eh? It is. And that's it why is. I do this podcast. And it's yeah. so wonderful to do it with you. Thank you so much, Maureen. Oh, you're quite welcome. I loved it. And also a big thank you to instructional technologist, Sally Goldberg-Powell, who produces Podagogies. And of course, a thank you to the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching for funding this podcast and giving us a chance to talk to folks like Maureen. 